0: Un- uncertainty is, is always there. It's, all, it's just always part of the market, um, sometimes more so than others, and sometimes people feel it differently. Downside uncertainty or uncertainty coupled with downside uh, market activity is much more impactful than uncertainty about how much the market's going to go up. Everyone kind of likes that, but it's, it's still uncertainty. It's, it's always out there. Welcome to the Trusted
1: Partner Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer and Gabe Chodak. Jesse and Gabe are relationship managers at Cobblestone Capital Advisors, a comprehensive wealth management firm that serves families and individuals in all aspects of their financial lives. All opinions expressed by Jesse and Gabe or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Cobblestone Capital Advisors. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Cobblestone Capital Advisors may maintain positions in
2: securities discussed in this podcast. We want to hear from you, send us an email with questions, suggestions, or content ideas to our email address, podcasts at cobblestonecap.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the trusted partner podcast on Spotify or Apple podcasts.
1: Hello everybody. And welcome to episode 33 of the trusted partner podcast. Gabe, we've got a really good one today. We're excited to bring back uh, Jason Garlock into Studio C. Jason is the Chief Investment Officer here at Cobblestone Capital Advisors.
2: And Jason's coming off um, our big event every year at Cobblestone. We do a main Economic Outlook event. Um, this year was hosted at the Memorial Art Gallery, and Jason usually does a you know, 20 to 30 minutes on what's happened in markets and economic outlook. And fresh off of that, we wanted to sit down with them and kind of capture that in podcast form. I think everybody was really enjoyed
1: the, the story that Jason told this year. I'm excited to bring it to our, to our listeners today. And then we, we talk a little bit more in depth too about economic news and some interest rate stories, some things that have affected the market recently. And then we dive into a little bit of some future looking questions that investors might have.
2: I'm really excited for this one. Let's
1: dive right in. Without further ado, here's Jason Garlock on episode 33 of
2: the Trusted Partner Podcast. Yeah, if you had said December of 2022 that you'll be sitting here recording the podcast before Thanksgiving, in November of 2023, and the S&P is up 18%. I mean, people would have thought you were nuts, the sentiment, the feeling, what the market had done, and yet here we are.
0: Yeah, close to 20%. I don't know about nuts. Uh, we came into the year really thinking that there was a wide range of outcomes, um, and obviously that includes potential positive outcomes. I wasn't necessarily thinking it was going to be 20%, to your point. Uh, but the, the concern coming into the year was really about some of the headwinds that we were facing from an economic standpoint, particularly a policy standpoint. You know, it, it, it seemed like the economy was slowing and the appetite for doing continued stimulus that would be needed to maybe drive it higher uh, was was certainly waning. Um, and we've, we've been really surprised to the upside from an economic uh, growth standpoint. Um, and that's really what's led to kind of that surprising upside in the S&P 500.
2: So I guess, and maybe you, hopefully you pay more attention to this than I do, you know, it seems like Jerome Powell and the Fed have been very adamant about, we are going to raise rates, they're going to stay higher for longer. It's kind of like, you know, Patty keeps telling me my jokes aren't funny and I don't listen. And it's like the market didn't listen for some time. And that's why we had that dip in, you know, the third quarter. But have people finally accepted that or did I miss... Represent what the Fed was saying. It's an no. Amazing analogy, that the, the yeah, Patty prob- joke analogy. Probably the yeah. best. Exactly, so we we really understood it. that one. No, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think I, I think maybe we can edit that. I,
0: I think it was uh, that the the market did finally accept that um, because he was very explicit about it earlier this summer, and like you said, that you know we're we're always hesitant to ascribe, you know. Too much to one thing or another thing, but but monetary policy and the outlook for the Fed is a very big thing right now, and and so uh, in this later in the summer he did come out and basically say, yeah, we're prepared to keep rates higher for longer, uh, and that contributed to uh, certainly to, to some meaningful extent the sell-off that we saw at the end of the summer, uh, along with some of the geopolitical tensions that we've we've seen more recently and some of the concerns around that uh, early in the fall Uh, but then again uh, last week or within the last couple weeks that seems to have turned again right to where now okay well maybe maybe it's not going to be higher for longer and so um, we're remain in a period where the market is very focused on monetary policy not the it's not the only thing that's important but it's something that the market is very focused on. Uh, but it can't seem to make up his mind as far as what it thinks is gonna happen. And also, is the news of lower rates actually good, or is it bad, right? Is it, is it good because it means we can start getting some more monetary policy, or is it bad because lower rates indicate lower economic growth, right? right?
1: And I was thinking, Gabe, not only was it the sentiment last December as compared to today, but even living through the last 11 months, Specifically, maybe living through the third quarter. I mean, I can start with the first half of the year. You know, the economic headlines were kind of uncertainty abounds, and yet the market performed pretty well the first half of the year. Right. Uh, and then in the third quarter, I think we saw what a peak to trough of a ten percent drop, mm-hmm. and more and negative sentiment. Yeah.
0: And then only in the last
1: couple weeks, three weeks, maybe we saw. Uh, you might know it, Jason. What is it? A eight or ten percent gain over the last yeah. three weeks yeah. leading so, into this, you know, right. what, November 17th recording. Um, it's, it's another cool example, too, of here we are, plus 18% on the year, but we also suffered a peak to trough decline, an entry-year decline
2: of minus 10. and that's As we do
0: almost every year. Exactly right, right. As we've talked about in the past.
2: It's like that you're on the plane you feel those bumps, you feel the turbulence and you're just, I feel like everyone's uneasy. Almost everyone's just waiting for that big drop. or oh, that, I was going to say waiting for yeah, the seatbelt light to come yeah, on. <laughs> right. That, and then the, you know, you have that big drop, but then things smooth out and then you, you know, Jason, when does this turbulence end or is this, are we just having some recency bias and it's always been turbulent?
0: Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I mean, it it doesn't ever really end. Uh, it it just takes different shapes. So we talked about this at, at our seminar last week. Um, un- uncertainty is is always there. It's all it's just always part of the market. Um, sometimes more so than others, and sometimes people feel it differently. Downside uncertainty or uncertainty coupled with downside uh, market activity is much more impactful than. Uncertainty about how much the market's going to go up. Everyone kind of likes that, but it's it's still uncertainty. It's it's always out there. Um, so I I don't to that as it relates to that. I don't think this is this period is really that much different as far as the uncertainty. Now we are and we've been saying this for a while, and, and a lot of people have been saying this for a while. We are at some point, going to reach the end of this cycle. Not necessarily even just the economic cycle, but some of the cycles as far as um, what's driving certain stocks within the market. Um, and so I think when you get closer to inflection points, either in a market cycle uh, or a monetary policy cycle, some of the uncertainty does start to ramp up a little bit there, but yeah, no, there's there's always uncertainty out there. Mm-hmm.
1: And so with market cycles, Jason, I mean, I'm I'm thinking of last week this client event that that you guys already alluded to. You walked us through an interesting metaphor, the parallels between your family's recent trip to uh, Costa Rica. You want to uh, do that again? you <laughs> <No. laughs> struggled with that. It was okay that time. <laughs> it's just as difficult as in writing, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> the parallels between the trip and the the journey of a long-term investor uh, in the markets. So. Let's rehash some of that conversation or some of your talk from the client event right now here on the podcast. Maybe we can start with what happened in Costa Rica.
0: Sure. Yeah. So the anecdote that I shared was really we went to Costa Rica last February and we spent the the first part of the trip up, up in the northern part by the, by the volcano up there. And then the second part of the trip down on the Pacific coast um, actually at a property that, that we invest in, in our first private real estate fund. And it took uh, about half a day to drive between the two and in, in between. And so. You know, as I, as I was saying you know I I have become so reliant on Google Maps over the years that I just kind of punch in the destination and whatever one is shortest I, I, I hit go and we set off and so even in foreign countries uh, so in this particular case uh, you know, I, I punched in the destination of where we were going and there were two routes and and one was about 40 41 minutes I think exactly uh, shorter than the other one and I'm like sure boom let's do that I'm like, Short oh, route makes sense yeah I want to get down there I want to get to the pool and, and start doing some poolside due diligence as I said right um, and it turned out that you know the the longer route was a was a route that I'd already driven when we came in from the airport when we got there and so I was largely familiar with it um, it's still costa rica so it wasn't e- the easiest driving but the route that we ended up taking followed the ridge of a mountain range uh, for almost the entirety of the trip and so we ended up with uh, a, a stop for some see- or some uh, some motion sickness on the side of the road we ended up getting a a flat tire that we had to change in the 100 degree heat or try to until finally some some locals came and, and bailed us out uh, and so some locals with some actual skills. some some actual, some actual skills. I thought it was gonna be a good opportunity to, to teach my son how to change a tire, but you know, the sweat was just pouring off my body and I think they felt bad for us. So um, anyways, we, we got the, we got the tire changed. We, we made it to our destination, you know, other than the flat tire, really no worse for wear, right. And so I in retrospect, you know could I have gone the long way and spent 41 extra minutes and maybe it was a smoother ride? maybe? But at the end of the day, it didn't really matter. Right? We, we got to where we wanted to go. Um, we don't know what would have happened had we taken the other path anyways. And so what's the sense in, 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 in trying to look back and second guess it, right? And so the analogy that I, that, I, that I was trying to draw by telling that personal anecdote is that in investing, as in life, there are almost always multiple paths to success right there's there's a goal that you're trying to get to and there is not just one right uh answer one right route one right path to get to that goal or to meet your financial goals there are different ones and when you find yourself on a path and you hit a pothole in that case literally or or you know in the bringing it back to investments specifically you're in a strategy that maybe is underperforming for some period of time that's okay it's about is this ultimately going to get me where I want to go? How do I how do I keep the the perspective to stay on that path, knowing that it's going to get me to where I want to go, and also acknowledge that the worst thing that I could do is jump off of that path onto some other one uh, that may or may not be better.
2: To be fair, right though the with the analogy, the portfolio still has to be a well constructed empirically proven strategy it's not like taking a skateboard or an electric scooter across the mountain range you still need to be in the somewhat widely accepted and appropriate vehicle for the journey
0: might have eventually gotten there but it it, it probably wouldn't have been an acceptable path yeah no I, I understood and uh and certainly a fair point um and then the, the crypto scooter The crypto scooter yeah and that that gets back into something that we hope that our 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 clients and people you know listening to the show and other people that are interested in what we have to say don't don't take for granted um but having a well-constructed diversified balanced account uh is crucial to this it's not just that you can buy anything and eventually you'll get to where you need to be it's got to be a well-constructed portfolio it's yes uh thanks for picking that up yeah Uh, stocked into malone that's right (laughs) um thank no thanks for laying it in there um it's more that within reasonably well-constructed portfolios the different strategies uh are favored by different people for different reasons and we know that over long periods of time some strategies are in favor some strategies are out of favor and that can go on for many 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 years Um, and it can be uncomfortable but as long as it's a reasonable strategy that ultimately has an an empirical reason to believe that it's going to be successful uh, your best course is to to stay on that path Mm
1: So Jason, after after the Costa Rica story, there's this parallel to uh, what, the value versus growth paradigm over the past what, thirty odd years. Right. So maybe can you walk us through that part of the story? And I know there were some great visuals that you showed at the client event, but I think the visuals are simple enough that we ought to be able to you know verbally explain them to our listeners and and explain the the power in those visuals.
0: Yeah, sure. And this gets to this gets to a little bit to Gabe's point um, in that there's a there's a lot of different strategies that you can choose. And this in this case, uh, in order to illustrate the point, it was obviously intentionally oversimplified. But but what I the, what I had run through was 30 years of market history. Right, basically the idea that if you were able to go back to 1993 and imagine that you were planning for retirement in 1993. Um, Uh, it it turned out that that was a pretty good time to be in planning for retirement. You know, inflation had come down. We had good U.S. Treasury rates that are actually pretty comparable to where we are now. And obviously, we wouldn't have known it at the time, but the market was poised to do incredibly well through through the end of the decade, right? And so in that oversimplified example, if you could either choose to be a growth investor or a value investor, right? Let's just assume that those are your only two choices. We know in real life that there's... Infinite different mm-hmm, combinations mm-hmm. of strategies, right? Um, and you had to pick one versus the other, okay? So in this example, let's say we picked value. Um, you would have started out for the first uh, five years feeling like you made kind of maybe made the wrong decision. Growth almost um, immediately, well, it had already started earlier in the 90s, but continued to outperform. And, and five years in, had, uh, had outperformed value by it a not insignificant amount yeah, at that yeah. point. And uh, the the next couple years, from kind of late 98 through March of 2000, which was the peak of the dot-com bubble, um, things got crazy. As anyone that was you know uh, investing then would remember, or if you've read your market history, uh, you're c- certainly aware of. By March of 2000, if you were invested in value stocks and not in growth stocks, you felt like a fool, right? right. I mean, underperforming and, by a huge amount. Yeah, but that, yes, that's underperforming. Yes, but you know, interestingly, uh, uh, again, because the '90s were such a, just a strong period for stocks in general, the value stock portfolio had, had actually doubled. Even if you were withdrawing, you know, four percent a year, your portfolio would still double. That is an, an amazing amount of wealth creation in a short period of time but the growth stock portfolio was up like three and a half X over mm-hmm. that time period. So this gets into the, you know, what's what's more important how you're doing or you know how you're doing relative, right. relative to right. your neighbor, which, you know, I know you guys have talked about on this podcast before, that whole kind of behavioral construct, right? And so, but that's very real, you know, mm-hmm. it's March 2000 and you're looking at, I, you know, I could have had three and a half million dollars instead of $2 million. Um, even the most stoic of investors is, uh, it's probably like, you know, uh, boy, I made a, mad, uh, made a bad decision here, a bad choice to go with value. But we know that the next year, all of that was gone right away, right? 12 months, growth underperformed value by, uh, or growth was down by about 40% relative to value. So in 12 months, all of that excess return that had come from growth was wiped out. And you were, by, by the beginning of 2001, you were back to it exactly the same spot. Growth was actually now below the value portfolio. For listeners who don't know, that was the what the dot com bubble bursting. The dot com bubble bursting, yeah, and it led into a,
2: a, a modest recession in the early part of the early part of the two thousands. But, I mean, of course, everyone just timed the market perfectly and sold the day before that crash started. So,
0: right, right. <laughs> uh, I'm sure some people claim <laughs> to have, and maybe there's a couple people out there that actually did. I, I don't know. Um, but from there, uh, value act continued to outperform for many, many years through 2007, value outperformed growth. And finally, from a relative standpoint, peaked uh, relative to growth right before the financial crisis. Okay? So you can imagine how the emotions have shifted over this time, over you know almost 15 years at that point, as far as the depths of despair as a value investor to feeling like, well, value the only way to grow. And... And the growth investors feeling exactly the opposite, right? Uh, going into the financial crisis, uh, obviously at the, during the financial crisis, all stocks uh, suffered pretty badly, but growth held up modestly better than value and then kind of continued to outperform in the very low rate environment that, that started in the stock market cycle and the economic cycle that started coming out of that recession. Um, but it wasn't until early 2017 that the growth stock portfolio caught back up to the value stock portfolio and they were back at the same the same uh, value, right? So this is 16 years later after value had started to underperform growth, or I'm sorry, 17 years later after value had, had started to outperform growth. So you're now, 25 years almost into retirement, and whether you had chosen value or whether you had chosen growth, you are now at exactly the same spot, right? Again, multiple paths to success. Unless not, you
2: get off that path.
0: Exactly, right? And in the, in this case, we're assuming that people stay the course or else the the analogy becomes really to hard. Not to not go through right. the Costa Rican jungle
1: right. Right. Well, to right. find
2: that's the other right. road.
1: And, and the one detail off of that, Gabe, is you know, when was the value investor maybe most tempted to get off the path? Mm-hmm. Right in the late 90s when they were up 2x, but the growth people were up 3.5. Right. And with the focus or now that we can zoom out on history, that would have been the worst possible time. They would have changed teams right before growth started to underperform. Exactly. So it would have been
0: the worst thing they could have done. Exactly. It's same with jumping from growth to value in 2007. Not not as stark as during the dot-com bubble, but the same thing, you know, we had we've now had Uh, 16 years of growth outperforming value, which is close to that 17 years of value outperforming growth. So these are very, very long cycles, and they're subject to, to different, obviously, different starting points, and people jump into these cycles at different points depending on when they retire, when they start saving, when, when they need money for college or a house or whatever the case may be. So these timelines impact everyone very differently. Um, and it's and that makes it even more difficult, I think, for the individual investor or even advisors that are helping work with individual investors to provide the perspective on how long these cycles can last and how, how important it is to stick out the your stick with your chosen strategy, uh, even if it hasn't worked for what seems and feels like a very long time. And those are those are those are challenging situations for clients. Those are challenging situations for us, as both of you know, as as advisors, to help clients through that. But that's ultimately the end of the day. That that's our job, right? Um, and that's 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 the main value that we bring. I think is in this perspective and making sure you say, look, here's your goals. We have a, a well thought out strategy that we believe is going to get you there. We're gonna give you perspective along the way on what's going on so you're comfortable on your path. And then when you look back on your financial journey in 25 or 30 years and you've reached your goals as, as we hope and believe that our, that our clients will, um, we want you also to be able to say, it doesn't really matter that there was also this other path that I could have followed that would have gotten
2: me to the same place. You know, Again, it's multiple paths to success. Not better or worse, just different. We're kind of at one of those points right now. Uh, growth has really outperformed value over coming since the financial crisis. Um, and we're looking at a point right now that is kind of scary. This is not advice to one thing or the other. But right when you look at what is driving returns in the market and what is re-dri- driving returns in the S&P 500, it, seven stocks make up about 30% of the S&P 500 right now. Um, some dubbed the Magnificent Seven term was actually coined earlier with my you know seventh grade JCC basketball team. Um, but you know we'll we'll give it to these stocks, I guess. Um, but Jason, walk us through kind of what that means, what the dangers are around that and the dangers around chasing that performance.
0: Sure. So I'm gonna um, build off of the Magnificent Seven and actually talk about the top ten stocks in the S and P 500, of which those are obviously seven, just because we have a, we have more data on the top ten than the top seven per se. But it's basically it's basically the same story. And that right? and that is cool a name. No, but it's you know we're not quite as well, yeah. we're just not quite as interested in JCC. In being they also be, only had eight basketball players. <laughs> so they, can't be the <laughs> they, they can't count, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the the challenge right now, right? So the the those top seven stocks and the top ten stocks, there's been a very wide valuation gap that's that's opened up between those top ten stocks and say the the rest of the S and P 500, the S and P 500 itself, right now. Those top ten stocks are trading at about 28 times earnings, and the rest of the S and P 500 is trading at about six times, 16 times earnings. Yeah. So that's a that is a meaningful valuation uh, disparity. Um, that more speaks to the how how far out of whack the performance has gotten, um, which we obviously see in the numbers as far as how strong the performance has been this year but the ramifications of that are how much how much excess valuation is in those stocks right now right on top of that though even if that valuation disparity was not as as stark as it is right now the history of 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 the markets is such that stocks tend to do the stocks that end up making it into the top 10, the largest and most successful companies in the, in the country, and by extension in a lot of cases, the whole world, obviously have had to do a lot of things very, very well to reach that point, right? These companies that we're talking about are very good companies. They've done tremendous things. Um, but the performance that, the significant outperformance that propels these companies into the top 10, um, historically, Once you get into the top 10, the companies, they don't um, underperform by a lot, but they start to underperform the rest of the market uh, by a consistent and growing amount over time. So even if you're only underperforming by half a percent or a percent, uh, in, the say, the decade or whatever that follows um, your entrance into the top 10. It doesn't mean that you're no longer a good company, that you've no longer created, continue to create wealth for shareholders, and some of these certainly will. Uh, we, we own a number of them and, and continue to believe in them. But on average, history says they're going to underperform, right? And
2: that that makes sense if you think about it right it's just that much harder to create value when your valuation your forward looking valuation is so high you have to do so much more and again, like you said it's not that amazon or apple are going to disappear and stop doing business and stop being good generators of wealth but relative to the rest of the market what more they have to do to continue to outperform is just so much more difficult yes
0: period um, what I would add to that though is the valuation disparity that we just talked about is on top of and what you were just referring to is on top of what are already challenges that these large companies face operationally mm-hmm. to continue to to perform um, the just the organization there there are benefits of having organizational scale right you've got an incredible brand that's worth a lot and you have access to cheap capital and on and on and on right so there are definitely benefits to it but your organization becomes much more it becomes much more difficult to manage uh, Amazon uh, again a company that, that, that we like and think will continue to do quite well going forward in 2009 had 25,000 employees and right now it has over a million and a half employees it's just a staggering scale as far as what that what is required to manage an organization that size and take a lot of these companies, and I don't want to pick on one in particular, but take an Apple for example. Uh, Apple is an extraordinary growth story, one of the most successful uh, companies in the in the history of the world. Um, the amount of innovation that they would need to be able to do going forward to replicate the success, uh, literally transformative properties, or I'm sorry, not properties, products, uh, three of them in the last couple decades. Um, to be able to do that again, and do that again in a way that is large enough to move the needle on a company that's now three trillion dollars plus, it's really really challenging. So, is it a good company? Yeah, it's a great company. Is it going to continue to make a lot of money um, and generate wealth? We think it is. Is it going to continue to outperform year in and year out by double digits? I don't think it. I don't think it's necessarily going to. Right? Um, does that uh, underperformance start this year, next year, the year after that. I'm not sure, right? And 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 maybe Apple does continue to outperform, and maybe Amazon does, or maybe one of them does and the other one doesn't. Uh, the point is, the if you're playing, if you're pl- if you're looking at history and using that as a guide, these ten stocks in aggregate should not continue to do what they've what they've done, uh, certainly over the last three years, where this valuation disparity has gotten as large as it has.
1: so, bringing this back to investments and portfolios, I mean, the lesson to take away is that, what, th- these top 10 or these magnificent seven, sure, they have great stories that got them here, but the probabilities that those stories continue infinitely into the future is is low. Is that the idea?
0: That's the idea. And I, and I think it's also just, we can acknowledge, hey, look, this is going on. We can't change it. Um, I guess if we had a time machine and we could go back and Put all of our client money just in those top 10 companies then obviously we would but it, it doesn't work that way so um, it's okay to see this narrow market breadth and let's talk about what that means let's talk about how historically anomalous that is let's talk about how long this could go on again to provide that perspective but the lesson is what do we actually do about it in client portfolios and the answer is not nothing, but not much, right? At the margin, make sure that we are appropriately exposed to these companies. We still own them in almost all of our strategies in in, in some amount, right? So we wanna have exposure to these really, really good companies. Um, it's how much, right? And are there changes that need to be done, made at the margin? And the biggest thing that that we need to do, and I think um, anyone, which I would submit is is probably the vast majority of investors out here, anyone that has a well-balanced, diversified strategy that owns more than just those top 10 stocks um, needs to step back and say, okay, this is okay, right? This is all right that these other stocks have done this. I own more than just those. Those are eventually going to be okay too, um, and not have that that lack of perspective, the lack of understanding of where they are from a valuation standpoint and how long the cycle's been going on and how, again, historically anomalous that is, drive you into making a decision to say, well, maybe I should just own these top 10, that's what's been working. That's
2: that's the thing that you can do that really gets you off track. And, and they have done fine, all these others, over this period of time, it, going back to you know the, the period you talked about before where the value portfolio had doubled. I mean, the rest of them have done okay. As long as you've been a good, rational, balanced investor, you're still doing fine. And so it goes back to the not looking at that other path or that neighbor or whoever it may be, but just, is this an appropriate portfolio for me? Will it help me reach my goals? And Is the risk acceptable, too? I mean, I would make the argument that having a concentrated portfolio of 7 or 10 equities and that's it is probably more likely to fail as an overall financial plan than owning a broader diversified portfolio. I think that's a pretty safe statement, yes. Yeah. I was... Jason's also our head of compliance, so I was eyeing him the entire time I was saying that.
0: <laughs> to make sure you didn't say anything forward-looking without the appropriate caveat. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> right, of yeah. forward-looking,
2: that's a, a great place. All of this we've talked about the past. Jason, there's a lot going on, as there always is, but certainly still all those worries, I think. there. I feel like people think there's just a lot of turbulence going on in, in the world. and um, What do you think? think the next six months 12 months and then or and then three five seven years look like so when i think about the
0: next month or three months or six months year five years seven years the first thing that i would remind everyone is as the as the time period compresses down into very short periods of time our ability to have anything honestly intelligent and predictive about what's going to happen in the market gets smaller and smaller and smaller i have some thoughts that are pretty well grounded in, in math and historical reality that gives me some comfort to provide guidance about returns over the next five to ten years and i'll and i will share those in a couple minutes i have uh, almost zero confidence in my ability to tell you what's going to happen in the market tomorrow or next week or next month or or even next year All right so that um, that's important to get that, that caveat out there, right? We, we w- With all of the studying that we do, all of the looking at the markets, all the looking at the market history we do, it is to provide that perspective so that we can talk clients through this and provide longer term perspective to help them meet their goals. Um, but from an economic standpoint, it is important that we look at the economy. The economy is ultimately what drives companies and is ultimately what drives stocks. Um, Predicting the economy is incredibly challenging. Um, I would say that uh, there has been persistent strength this year in 2024. That's part of why we've been surprised to the upside as far as uh, how how strong stocks have been this year. Uh, I don't know that that's sustainable. It's possible that the Fed uh, and all the other people that are involved in this managed to engineer a, uh, a soft landing. Uh, or um, which means that we don't end up having a recession. Um, it's also possible that we do have a slowdown and we have a slowdown later this year or, or next year or, or at some point in the future. Um, I think it's, it's, it's probably more likely than not that we, that we do at least have some and, and, um, stocks could react negatively to that. That does not mean that, that we're, we're looking at a, a financial crisis or anything like that. Um, economic contractions happen, uh, stock pullbacks happen. And it could also be that, uh, in fact, what we saw even this summer with a quick 10% correction, what we saw last year with a technical bear market in 2022, which we haven't quite got yet to back up to to all-time highs yet, so we're still technically in that bear market, that that bear market is already pricing in whatever economic weakness does come in the next, quarter, year, whatever the case may be. So, um, as, as it relates to the, the the shorter term with the caveat that really we don't know, um, we are still trying to remain appropriately cautious because there is a fair amount of economic uncertainty out there around how much longer this cycle can last, how much longer employment can stay as strong as it has, et cetera, et cetera, right? But when, I think, um, when we start to look out to the, the longer-term time period, say, five-plus years. Uh, we are as constructive on forward returns for a well-constructed, balanced portfolio as we have been in a long, long time. And that comes back to not what is the economy doing now, what's the Federal Reserve doing now. Uh, it comes back to uh, the basic fundamentals on how securities are priced and how value is created in markets, both equity markets and fixed income markets. And so we know, I think we talked the last time I was on about the challenges that, that bonds have faced in this rising rate environment, right? But the, the positive side of, of interest rates being much higher than they were uh, a year ago, and three years ago, and five years ago, uh, pushing five percent up until a recent pullback on the ten-year treasury. For example, is that that those elevated bond prices are the um, is the base off of which all other risk assets and the bond part of the portfolio gets priced, uh, and so when we think about Having five year investment grade bond retur- or five year investment grade bond returns in the four to five percent range, we feel pretty good about that part of the portfolio delivering mid-single digits over the next five to ten years. There's a very strong historic correlation between the current yield and the future returns on the bond part of the portfolio. And what we at least what history tells us is that while we don't know what stocks are going to do Um, As far as absolute returns for stocks, there is a long history of stocks providing a pretty consistent premium over bonds of 300 to 500 basis points. And so, and then, you know, the other things that we do in the portfolio, alternatives and private have different premiums, even on top of that, illiquidity liquidity premiums and and other risk premiums that we're trying to capture there, right? So when you have a 5% base in the risk-free rate in bonds, uh, compared to almost zero, as it was a couple years ago, it just ratchets up the expected returns for not just bonds, but everything that has to be priced in the market relative to bonds. And so we feel good about uh, the trajectory of balanced accounts in the, in the coming years. And hopefully, uh, uh, clients can take something from that, that, what I consider to be a fairly optimistic
2: outlook in that regard. It's like a delicious layered cake. You would make a food metaphor.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking about layering in risk premiums uh, (laughs) to build portfolios, and Gabe's just over here thinking about cake, (laughs) which is is fine.
1: All right, so as we record this here on the Friday before Thanksgiving, we're not exactly sure. This podcast is either going to come out right before Thanksgiving or right after. So let's talk about the holiday. Let's go around the circle, guys, and on a fun question, what's your favorite part of the Thanksgiving holiday?
2: I think this year we usually host. We usually host... Um, my mom and stepdad and my in-laws and then whoever else is straggling behind I think this year it's like 19 people now Um, but I love it great holiday sit around have some drinks I'm working on a good smoked uh, smoked Manhattan Um, and I will also smoke a turkey as I have done in the past and my son's gonna help me this year so some good family time some good food some good drinks Um, smoked cake (laughs) 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 Uh you both laughed (laughs) yeah that was good so yeah
1: nice i like it
0: yeah no i we we have not hosted at our house in in quite some time and we are this year and getting both sides of the, the family together um and my my wife is a saint she will cook a feast all day for 17 to 20 people however many people come and, and that's you know it, it's the easy thing to say right but it really is about uh, spending time spending time with family Thanksgiving's always been one of my one of my favorite uh, days of the year um, but beyond spending time with a family you've got football you've got uh, bourbon you've got all the food that that uh, you could ever care to eat um, There's a spread laid out at our house, as there are at many houses around this time, with with 10, 12, 15 different dishes I don't even know. And then my wife always kind of looks at me and rolls her eyes because I just load it up with turkey, mashed potatoes, and gravy. That's it. That's all I go with. And it's not that the other stuff's not good. I just like that stuff so much. We're hosting this year. We're very first time hosting ever. I'm very
1: excited for to host. Uh, we've got 11 people coming over. Uh, my wife put together a spreadsheet of the dishes. You know who's in charge of what? I'm in charge of uh, I think mashed potatoes with my brother-in-law and I'm also ma- making biscuits, buttermilk biscuits. So big res- big responsibility. but you know I've got some baking shops so I can make it happen. But uh, like Gabe,
0: I'm responsible for cocktails.
2: That's good. So that's, that a good responsi- a big, that's a big responsibility. That's a good one, though. Yeah. That's a good responsibility. you got to make yeah, sure I'm people. Wine, are... cocktails, and yeah. smoking the turkey. Nice. Yeah. Nice.
0: Don't burn the house
2: down. And we have an electric smoker. <laughs> not that sophisticated. Okay. Gabe doesn't think electricity can start fires. <laughs> <laughs> and seed. <laughs>
1: And listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Trusted Partner Podcast. We want to start answering some of your questions on the show. So if you have an investing, a financial planning, a personal finance question, send that question to podcast at cobblestonecap.com. Once again, that's podcast at cobblestonecap.com. Thank you again for listening to the Trusted Partner Podcast.